Namaskar. It's a pleasure to be here and recognize some familiar faces also. Yeah, it's nice. <clears throat> so I'm giving uh, six talks in Bangalore. And then the seventh is a workshop. And then I go to Chennai, where there's even more congested uh, itinerary. Mohanji thought that maybe two events a day is not enough, so we'll do three in Chennai. So we have uh, more congested itinerary in Chennai. And then I come back and to Bangalore for one day, and uh, Art of Living is going to have a big event on the 24th afternoon. Sri Sri Ravi Shankar will launch the book over there. And so it'll be a huge gathering because of that. Then I go off to Bombay, and then Ahmedabad, and then Delhi. So there'll be uh, 20 to 25 events total. So what I decided is that uh, rather than repeating each event is, has different people. So if it's purely a series of lectures with different content, then some of you will not know what happened previously you may not understand it. On the other hand, it's boring for me to keep repeating the same thing every time. And it'll be just one overview after another overview, but I'll never get to go into detail. So I had to make a balancing between these two. And I decided that each time, <clears throat> I'll give a little bit of overview so you know the whole thing a little bit. But then I'll say something different. Uh, it, so I can move from one part of my book to the next. And in these six lectures total, uh, I want to discuss most of the big ideas in the book, especially at least an, a summary of the big idea. So you can then go read more details because I want people to actually read the details. <clears throat> so what I want to start with is that this book is basically, while the title is The Battle for Sanskrit, it's not a book that is going to teach you Sanskrit or teach you why it's a great language and so on. It's more about Sanskriti and how it's facing uh, threats from academic people. And these threats are not just very abstract, intellectual, but they turn into political, they turn into human rights movements, they turn into media biases so what stays in the academy what starts in the academy doesn't stay in the academy it gets spread out and each of my books i pick a different theme a different target so here i picked indologists people who are sanskrit studies experts these people are very powerful they're not fools don't mix them up with wendy doniger don't mix them up with missionaries it's a different different battle. It's a different battle, different different data, different arguments. So the idea, the, the way I approach is each book, I pick the main scholars at the very top of a genre or a school of thought and I take all their works and then I evaluate them objectively. 
and give a response from our side. I'm not attacking anybody personally. I don't want to do that. It trivializes my work because I don't have to work so hard if all I wanted was to keep uh, abusing people. I don't believe in that. So it's a very uh, balanced view. Uh, it respects the other people even though I disagree with them. Uh, there's no, no, nothing personal, uh, no personal uh, uh, mudslinging or any of that that I want. <clears throat> now, the methodology being used to study Sanskrit, Sanskriti, all the texts of Sanskrit is what I'm going to tell you a little bit about. Why this is something serious for us to take note of. Yeah? Now, I made a list of what are some of the key objections I have and I want to share that with you. Probably the most, there, there is one thing, one major thing they remove from our tradition, which is very important for us, but they remove it. And then they add two things. So if you take something and remove the essence, that's a big distortion. And then you add two things which are damaging, that's further distortion. So I'll tell you what these are. They remove the sacred dimension, secularize it make it kind of an atheistic text or make it look like it the sacredness claimed is not authentic it is claimed but it is not really authentic it is irrational unscientific and so on so the, the parmarthika what the vedas call parmarthika the transcendental realm is removed and what is added are two things one is that the text is mainly concerned about social oppression, oppression against Dalits, women, these kind of things, minorities. So they're looking for Marxist left-wing uh, idea, you know, that perspective is what they're bringing and looking for social oppression in, in Vedas, in Ramayana, in all kind of texts, <clears throat> even in grammar. And then second thing they're adding is political, they, they are see, studying these texts as political weapons by the elite. So they are socially oppressing and they are, the elite want to get political power for themselves using these texts. That's how the Sanskrit tradition is being studied. Now of course they are very full of praise, they will to fool people, they will say it's a great language, it's such a beautiful language, we should revive it. And so people talk to call me and say, why are you criticizing me? The guys are so nice. Because our people are easily duped. This morning, I gave a talk at a Sanskrit university. We had 150 scholars, faculty people, PhD people, scholars. It was a very, very interesting talk, uh, Q&A and interaction. Then we had a private brainstorm with the top people in a private room. And it's very clear, none of them have properly studied and understood Western Indology. When I asked a big room, has anybody done Purva Paksha of Western Indology? Nobody raised a hand. And then I said, okay, I'm glad nobody has raised a hand because I know that's the case. You're honest about it. Then one guy raised his hand. I said, good, I'd like to understand more what you've done. Then one more guy raised his hand. So those two out of 150 said they have done some Purva Paksha, which means study of the other an analysis of your opponent.
This is required of our tradition. To be a scholar in the ancient times, you are required to study your opponents in an honest way and then give a response to them. Otherwise, you are not considered properly qualified. You can't say, I know what I, I'm, uh, what I believe, I don't have to worry about what he says. No, you have to worry about what he says. So this escapism today from confronting the other is not what we had in the past. They were very open and direct about examining the other's point of view and giving a strong answer. So the another gentleman, I really appreciated him. He's, he's, one, he's one of the senior Sanskrit scholars in the faculty. He stood up and said, the traditional Sanskrit scholars of India have failed the nation. We have failed our tradition because we haven't done this kind of Purva Paksha. And this is absolutely true. And I'm glad he said it because I was going to say it. And it's better that one of them said it. So why? So it is very interesting that our traditional scholars are afraid. They're not very qualified. They are hiding. And they have given the field over to the Westerners. And they, some of them are on the payroll of the Westerners. Lot of Indian traditional scholars are being funded by the Westerners. Some, they pick the best ones and fund them and take them somewhere, brainwash them, send them back. So it's not only Western scholars who are doing these things, but now large army of Indian scholars are joining. They, they're also in the same intellectual wavelength. In the British era, the British were not as active in appropriating Indian minds. There were some, like Ram Mohan Roy got appropriated and a lot of other you know, brown side type people, but mainly for administrative jobs in the British system. Intellectual things they control. And so what is called Orientalism and Indology was mainly being done in Oxford and, you know, Germany and so on, hardly much over here. Whereas now the Americans have taken this over and their system is more assimilative. So they've assimilated a lot of Indians and Americanized them and brought their idea of India and their idea of Indology, their idea of Sanskrit into the Indians and had them go back to India and export it. So this is a very dangerous thing going on. Not only do I have to critique and expose Western scholars, but also Indian leftists, but not only that, Hindu activists, Hindu intellectuals, many of them are compromised. They'll talk, they're against certain problems that are going on very nicely, very actively, but they haven't really gone deeper and done their investigation. So they'll end up supporting the wrong guys. They'll end up supporting the same kind of people that we should be criticizing. And in this book, I will give you many examples of our people from Narayan Murthy onwards to the Shingeri Mutt to lot of people who are going around promoting Hinduism and uh, going to conclaves and having workshops and all that actually being aligned with the wrong side. I don't know if it's deliberate or just ignorance, but it is the case. So uh, my approach is stick to the issue, stick to an issue. So here is the misinterpretation of Ramayana. This is what's wrong with it. This is what I want to uh, replace it with. This is my response. Here is a wrong interpretation of Vedas. Here is my response. 
Here is a wrong interpretation of, of the history of Sanskrit, of the relationship of Sanskrit with vernaculars, and here is my response. So we should stick to issues. If you, are, if you take a position which is based on issues, then it doesn't matter what the personality of somebody is. He may be a big shot, but if he's on the wrong side, he's on the wrong side. So that is how I'm approaching it. I'm not concerned with, you know, he's a good man and he, he's somebody we should not talk this way. I, I don't care. I'm looking at the issues and if, 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 I, if I'm very convinced of, the, uh, of a, what position we should take on a given issue, then whoever is on the wrong side is on the wrong side. Doesn't matter how powerful he is. This is how we have to, we have to do. So I will tell you the, the first tell you a little bit about these areas of bias. The first area is removal of the sacred. Now the removal of the sacred happens in a very subtle way. They keep praising the Vivarika. They keep praising that uh, brilliant poetry, it's beautiful, and things like that. But they've removed the Paramarthika, which is the sacred dimension, the transcendental dimension. When you remove the Paramarthika, you really don't have a, the Vedic, Vedas are no longer Shruti. So what you've done is you've turned it into some poetry. And then you have people like this Devdalak Patnaik and all kinds of bestsellers, Hindus are love, in love with them, who turn it into mythology. So the, the real purpose of the text is gone and it becomes some kind of pop culture and some kind of, uh, you know, fiction kind of thing. There's a very big industry in India where you turn this into sort of uh, secular or casual entertainment, casual entertainment. Uh, and this is a very serious problem for me because I feel that they're tampering with the sacredness of my, my heritage. Now, there is a term, philology. Philology. How many of you know the term philology? Anybody? Okay, very good. Some people don't. So philology, philology is, it means a systematic study of texts, which means you read a text very systematically. You try to understand, making sense of a text, understanding its meaning, interpreting what it means. So when you take a Gita class and they're trying to tell you what this word means, what that means, so they're doing philology, they're looking at the language, what each of those words means and trying to explain the whole text bit by bit. They are doing a philological analysis. So this philology exists. We have Indian philology, Indian approaches to interpretation would be called Indian philology. We have different philologies in the West. So which system you use will determine what you outcome you get. Okay. So that is philology. Now what Indologists have done is invented another term, which they call political philology. Okay. Political philology means looking at a text to look for political motives. So when, when somebody is doing this jagna, he must be exploiting. When, when somebody is doing Katha of Ramayana, there, there's actually a political motive they're looking for. So they're looking for pol political motive everywhere. Political philology is the uh, study of Indian texts uh, with the idea of finding uh, political exploitation, political uh, misabuse. So political philology is a kind of a not general philology, it's a particular philology looking for something, which is not how we look at our texts. Then another term is called liberation philology. Westerners have invented liberation philology as a methodology to study Sanskrit texts. 
Liberation philology means we now intervene in the Indian society to liberate them from their own oppression. So political philology is their Purva Paksha of India, Indian texts. Purva Paksha means understanding the other. So their Purva Paksha of the Indian text they do through political philology. And their Uttar Paksha means response. What is your recipe? What, is, what do you want to change? That they do through liberation philology. So political philology is I understand you. Liberation philology now I get in and change you to liberate you. This is all this is so sophisticated and abstract. I try to make it very simple in this book. So if you read it, you'll understand things that have taken me a very long time, a lot of reading to understand exactly what they're saying and bring it to you in a way that is easily understood by an average person. The problem is our traditional people cannot figure out what they're saying. They cannot figure out head or tail of what they're saying. So rather than learning, upgrading their knowledge and then giving a response, our traditional uh, people have said, we don't care, why should I care, it doesn't matter to me, they're nice people, they come here, they give me some grants, they fly me to USA, look after me. So our people are also bought off. So partly it is shame of being ignorant, partly it is uh, inferiority complex, partly it is greed, everybody competing each other to get a little bit ahead. So all of these things in combination have produced, I'm sorry to say, a whole incompetent group, a whole generation of incompetence we have. So then it is easy to be bombastic and stand up and say, oh, we hit this guy, this emotional. That doesn't help. You cannot, be, you cannot respond to a very serious intellectual work by being emotional outburst, bombastic. That, that is how people overcompensate their ignorance, our people, by being very emotional, okay, out of control emotions. So my work is very serious. And it is very risky because I'm alone. I wish there were many more people doing this, then we would all be in company with reinforce, support each other. But because I'm alone, they know this guy has to be brought down because he's setting a bad example. And if he prevails and wins enough people, then you know the Western Indologists will be in trouble. They know that. So in this book, I introduce many of my own original new ideas. One of them is I call sacred philology which means you guys are studying my culture as a political system of texts. And then you want to liberate it from its sacredness because you consider sacredness to be oppressive, primitive, backward, unscientific. You want to liberate it from all those things. I, on the other hand, do just the opposite. I want to study it using sacred philology, which means the philology, the systematic study, looking for sacredness. So our people look for the Vedic text as sacred. We don't look at it as some kind of political system going on, you see. Now, when they study Bible, it is a political system. It's all about Romans. They did this to this Jesus, and then this happened. It's all political. And even uh, uh, the Jewish is, you know, some, they made them into slaves, then they're supposed to. So it is like God, God is playing politics in the world. The whole thing is like that. And similarly, Islam. It's all a political, military conquest running here, there. So they're bringing this kind of an idea on us. And I really don't like it. And this business of liberating us from our own traditions is very dangerous. It's really colonizing us. It says that your tradition no good, I know better, and you, know, you are stuck in some exploitation, I'm going to liberate you. So this dangerous combination of political philology as the diagnostic tool 
and liberation philology as the prescribed cure. So political philology will tell you what the disease is and liberation philology will treat it. This is a very dangerous combination and my response is that I want our text to be read as, as sacred philology. And they don't, just don't, can't accept this because I'm putting the control back in the hands of tradition. Problem is, when I say I'm representing the tradition, who? I look behind me, it's empty, nobody's standing there. Yeah, nobody's standing there. It's like this, uh, it's, imagine some war and there is some general in a, in a big tank and uh, something, he's going ahead and conquering those guys and there's big army behind him, he's so proud. But then when the firing starts, he looks in the back, they all run away. I feel like that. I feel like a, a let down constantly. And they keep clapping. Some, some people say, sir, you are so great, nothing will happen to you. Go fight. Oh, we'll sit here and clap. We eat our samosa, we're having chai, we're watching. Sir, we're watching you on TV. You're doing a good job. So I don't want to be this mascot, this boxing guy who's being encouraged to go fight and take the hits alone. I can't. I need others to join. So who are these others that are going to join me? So the scholars are, our traditional scholars are not up to the mark. But they're very arrogant. Some of them will say, who are you? Some Sanskrit scholars have said, who are you? We, got, we are the scholars. So I say, good, you do the Purvapaksha. I'll sit home now. You do the Purvapaksha. Come back in one year and give me a report. They don't want to take the responsibility, you see. So they have this official position, but they're not really honoring it. They're not really performing like they should. So if we set them aside and we look at common Hindus, they're not doing it. Some of them are not qualified because it's very, very hard work. It's not just a matter of be, making a cut and paste here and there. It's very hard work. You'd have to do like me. You'd have to quit doing everything and for a couple of decades just immerse yourself and do this because that's what it would take. And some of them don't have the English language skills. Some of them who have the English language skills are so westernized in their lifestyle. They're sold out. They don't want to. They're more aligned with the West than with our tradition. That's a problem we have. And then those Hindu lead thinkers who are not sold out, who have the English skills, who understand the problem. Many of them are looking for quick getting ahead without the tapasya needed to do it properly. So they would love to follow me around and use me as a source of information that they can quickly package and put it out somewhere and then keep me out because then I'm a dangerous guy to have around because I'll, I'll say things that they don't know and embarrass them, so it's better that they, they don't have me around. So this is also, these kind of things are not helping our cause. It is not helping our cause. Then you have people in uh, power. Uh, people in power, I don't think that they are serving our tradition, they are using the tradition for political getting themselves ahead. So uh, media is not really serious about our tradition. Government hasn't really done a whole lot. No government, old government, new government. I mean, the new government is better than the old government. But brave new moves would have by now been taken to at least understand the problem, the diagnostic of the problem, have a report saying that's the state of Indology. I have proposed, offered, free of charge, that I'll produce a report on the state of Indology in the world, like a McKinsey report on an industry because I used to do industry analysis. I used to do industry analysis. And I've done this industry analysis about Indology for so many years. Then I stopped doing it because nobody pays any attention. So I said, I'm willing to revive that. I have databases, I have a lot. I mean, I, I, I'll produce this, 
but I, I don't want any money and all that I, or anything for that, except I want an audience. I want to make sure the real decision makers will read it, understand it, appoint some people to study it, evaluate it. It will become an important discourse and I, I, I have no uh, traction, you see, because um, it's very interesting to that uh, even in the new government, a lot of infiltration has happened, even in the new establishment. Because, you know, the colonial system and the Western thinkers are very shrewd, savvy. They've been around for hundreds of years. They know how to infiltrate. They know how to penetrate. So through one means or another, they get their people in the door. They come with Dan, Sam Dan. Sam Dan, we are going to help you. We are going to do this and that. That's all. Not Bhed Dand. That is later. So Sam Dan, charitable, getting in the door. Now, this is a... Um, this is the situation that I'm facing. So I, uh, I uh, after the realization of, uh, that the basic goal they have is remove the sacred from our texts in the interpretation and introduce oppression, social, social and economic and oppression, and then politics as the as the re, as the reason for these texts to be popular, these texts to be uh, popularized. That motive they keep insinuating. After that, I realized. Next thing I realized is that the um, oral tradition, oral tradition, is denigrated, devalued. The claim being made by Western Indologists is that history of Sanskrit starts with writing. Before that, it's oral, but no progress is being made. Everything is just static. People are fixed in the same thing. They're repeating. They're doing this mechanical yagna and they're chanting these Vedas that nobody understands, and these clever Brahmins want to keep it secret, they don't write it down, because if it's secret, they can exploit people, nobody understands what they're doing, it's some kind of magic. And they've convinced people this magic is necessary for social good, for keeping the order, so everybody's obeying them, it's a system of exploitation. And Buddhists come and attack the Vedas, which is not really true, but that's their theory, and the Buddhists then start writing for the first time. So according to them, writing in India is invented by Buddhists. And when Buddhists start writing, their goal for writing is that they want to make it democratic. They want to make the right material available to everybody. So they start writing. And then the Vedic Brahmins, also copy from the Buddhists, start writing. So Sanskrit written down is a Vedic invention which the Hindus copied from them. That's the theory. And so the whole history of when Valmiki wrote Ramayana is changed. Valmiki, according to them, wrote Ramayana 200 years after Buddha. So the ancient nature of Ramayana is finished, not there. Very recent dates are added. This, uh, the, the devaluation and sidelining the oral evidence is a very convenient thing for them because they could not make such claims if you have to look at the oral evidence. Because the oral evidence shows that uh, Sanskrit has been evolving, it's not fixed. New grammar has been in developed, the old grammar has been evolving, mathematics, astronomy have been evolving. So one way not to take that evidence into consideration is to just say we don't consider oral evidence, it's not reliable. So this, is a, uh, this, this devaluation of the oral is a very serious problem for me in the Western Indology. Another very major problem is they, they find the Shastra as a category 
not any one Shastra in particular, but Shastras in general, to be uh, wrong, to be to be a, the wrong thing to revive. They keep saying that Shastras are so close to Vedic that they are really propagating the Vedic abusiveness in another way. So all the Shastras are reflecting Vedic metaphysics, and since Vedic metaphysics is a hierarchy, social oppression, all of that continues in the, through the Shastras also. Shastras transmit the Vedic poison. Toxic, what is toxic in the Vedas gets transmitted through the Shastras. So there's also a, a problem with Shastras according to a lot of Western Indologists. And I have a whole chapter, a whole large number of pages on showing what exactly their argument is and giving my response to that. Then there is this whole critique of Kavya, poetics. Uh, their critique of Kavya is that Kavya is also is mainly a political device used by kings to show off their greatness. They hire Brahmins to write how great the king is, Prashastis. And so these Prashastis are basically Brahmin sponsored by king to praise the king so that the public will think king is great. And so it's a Brahmin and king conspiracy to exploit the people. All the Marxist thinking, class struggle, Marxist thinking. So uh, this whole business of uh, how the language is, the Sanskrit language is very sophisticated and the poetics are very sophisticated, makes Indians very happy. But what they're really saying is it's sophisticated as a system of exploitation. It's a, it's a it's sophisticated system of making a fool out of you. That's what they're, how, that's the reason Sanskrit is so great according to them. So this also uh, I, is an issue that I oppose very seriously in my book. Then there is a whole chapter I have on uh, the relationship between Sanskrit and vernaculars. This, the, my theory is that the, it's a relationship of harmony. Sanskrit br brought formal structure and vernaculars are free, experimental, evolving, new things happening. Uh, and the two are feeding knowledge back and forth. Sanskrit words are being adopted into the vernaculars. Vernaculars introduce words that become Sanskritized. So this has been a back and forth thing. But the Western Indologists say that Sanskrit is sort of uh, aggressive, dominating, controlling, uh, bossing over the vernaculars. It's invading, it's kind of a oppressive system. And uh, it's an elitism. It's the, the Sanskrit was controlled by the elitists and the vernaculars are for the masses. So again, it's a Marxist class struggle idea being brought in. And they also believe the Sanskrit is an Aryan foreign thing. So then uh, a whole chapter I have on Ramayana. The Ramayana is uh, mischaracterized and distorted in the Western Indologies big, big way, big way. One of the most uh, ridiculous claims is that Ramayana was unpopular, was not a big thing in the public imagination until the Muslims invaded and then the Hindu kings needed something to unite the public against the Muslims. So they thought, the, they, they dreamt up this Ramayana as a great tool to uh, hit out at the Muslims by calling them Rakshasas. So this idea that the king is divine and the demonic other has to be killed for the sake of public harmony, gets projected onto the Muslims. This is the theory that they have. It's a very dangerous commune. I think this is communal, communalism. If we say something like that, we would be called communal. But this is what the Western Indologists have dreamt up. 
that the Ramayan is to be accused as a system of anti-Muslim rabble-rousing for a thousand years. And so these people who are writing all this say that uh, what they did in Ayodhya, what these Hindus did is not a surprise because that's the way Ramayan has been used for a very long time. So um, this uh, um, popularity of Ramayan across Southeast Asia, every, wherever you know, Indian influence has been, is explained as uh, kind of the kings want to popularize Ramayan because then the king looks like he's divine. He's like Ram. He's, he's divine. And it's a way to make himself, you know, be accepted by the public as somebody divine. So Brahmins are fed and sponsored by the king. So that because the Brahmin is the one who's going to make the king look divine and make the king look superior. So the king sponsors the Brahmin and the Brahmin writes all this stuff and promotes the Ramayana and does yagnas to make the king very powerful. And so it's, a, again, a collaboration between the king as an elite and the Brahmins as an elite to support each other. So it's a franchise with king and uh, Brahmin being the co-conspirators, if you will, and they keep spreading this all over Southeast Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia. So Ramayana is sort of a device to do that. This, this kind of, uh, you know, I, I did a whole chapter on Ramayana, how the West, West sees Ramayana as a case study. And then I show how this kind of idea of Ramayana has entered movies, it has entered school textbooks. Now there is a TV serial uh, Devdutt Patnaik is doing, uh, 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 you know, in, in India, uh, where basically these kind of ideas are there. So uh, what starts in the academy doesn't stay in the academy. It enters in public life. And uh, look at the Aryan theory we are having to live with, the Dravidianization, of politics we're having to live with. It all started in Indology. When people say, how does it matter? Well, it matters because these things you can trace back until Max Miller, Nobri, and, and uh, a few other people, yeah, Robert Caldwell, until these two jokers in the mid-1800s, nobody had uh, in India for thousands of years, there's no such thing as a consciousness of we are Tamitian and they are Aryan or vice versa. There is no text talking like that in India. Suddenly, these Western Indologists take our texts, give different spin, and come out with this. And today, we are having to live with it. Similarly, the caste system is a distortion from Varna and Jati. So that, too, also is a big problem we are living with. It's the product of Western Indology. So you cannot say that this Western Indology is just some theoretical thing for a few professors, sir, why are we worrying? We have to worry. These things are rapidly uh, entering the minds of our society in a very systematic and aggressive way. Now, there is also a claim that Sanskrit had racism which taught racism to the Europeans. That they picked up racism from Sanskrit. That the, when we blame the colonialists, we shouldn't blame the colonialists because when they came to India, they studied all this stuff, Sanskrit and they picked up these ideas. And the Germans picked up these ideas and started Holocaust on the Jews, but the Germans picked up these ideas from Sanskrit. There's a very famous paper called Deep Orientalism. Orientalism is this, uh, how the uh, Western scholars, Indologists have stereotyped the Orient, Asian stuff. And Orientalism is accused of being sort of racist. So the response from the Western Indologists is, 
that yes, it is racist. We agree, it's bad. But it became racist because of their study of Sanskrit. So they picked up these bad habits from Sanskrit. So again, we are being blamed, even for the racism that we are subjected to. That this racism that we are subjected to is because in Sanskrit, the Brahmins were doing these things already for a long time, and they learned it from us. So again, ridiculous things, but very senior professors, powerful people, rewarded by our government, writing these kind of things. So um, then there is a very audacious claim called the death of Sanskrit, which says Sanskrit has been dead for a thousand years. Hindu kings killed it. Hindu kings killed it. Muslims try to help, but they would, Hindu kings would not get their help. And they give some example here, maybe a sultan somewhere or somebody was uh, actually sponsoring and helping Sanskrit as though that's a true fact, you know, for Islamic uh, uh, in, uh, rulers in general. And they pick up some example of some Kashmir Hindu king who was no good as an example of how they were all corrupt. So again, data is accurate data, but ex ex exaggerated and taken out of context and turned into something very big. So Sanskrit died under those circumstances. It is a dead language. And therefore, they studied like Greek and classic, which, uh, Greek and Latin, which are dead languages. Greek and, classic, uh, uh, Greek and uh, Latin are considered classical languages because classical languages in the European context means a dead language, which is not living. It lives in a museum. You put it in the museum and scholars study it and then you are very, you talk about in a very patriotic way that this is our ancestor. They used to be like that. It's not living today. And I am not happy with the Sanskrit being called a classical language because Chinese do not think of Mandarin as a classical language, but a living language. Arabs don't think of Arabic as a classical language, but a living language. Iranians think of Persian as a living language. Russians think of Russian and Japanese think of Japanese as living old languages, but living. So Sanskrit to me is an old language, which is living language. And we ought to make it more living rather than saying it's a dead language. Classic and classical is a very uh, sophisticated, polite, proud way for you to support this idea. So when they say it is one of the greatest classical languages, Indian clap, wow, you know, it's like saying you are one of the best dead people sitting there. <laughs> yeah, and you clap, wow, we call me one of the best. You know? So our people are also stupid. I mean, we are really fools. We're really fools how easily it is to dupe our people. So I face a lot of resistance from our own people who, who can't understand what I'm doing because they are in so much in awe of this kind of scholarship. And I, I'm telling you, this is not my biggest uh, obstruction is not uh, Westerners so much or Indian leftists so much, but my own fellow Hindu intellectuals and activists who just don't get it. And they are a little bit this way, a little bit that way, uh, quite mixed up, quite opportunistic, mainly interested in getting ahead very quickly and not wanting to go deep enough uh, and call a spade a spade. So our, our own people are, uh, uh, and I don't want to name big institutions, but we have very big uh, Hindu institutions that are also guilty of all this. So uh, I'll just leave it at that. I'm in enough trouble already, so I don't want to create any more. Uh, so this, this, uh, I'm just, I just gave you a, a view of uh, some of the issues that I mentioned in this book. And I've given a lot of data, examples, quotations, and whatnot. 
So um, what we need to do today, I will now talk about what we need to do today. We need to revive the Purva Paksh tradition. The Purva Paksh tradition means the study of Western Indology, the study of whoever the others are. And I am focusing on Western Indology. I don't have the skills to study China or Pakistan or others. Uh, there are many other people who can do it. All of those need to be done, but I'm studying Western Indology as my specialty for the last many decades. This requires introducing a whole new kind of uh, uh, curriculum in Sanskrit studies. It's not enough to just learn the language and, and not enough to learn a few important texts and repeat what was written and said by debating, debaters thousand years ago. Uh, you have to be innovative and you have to start new arguments, new battles, new debates the way I am. That is what our scholars need to do. And it takes a whole different level of scholarship to, to do that. Um, the intellectual kshatriyas that I want, uh, I'm sorry to say that very few of them are really intellectual. Most of them are emotional kshatriyas. There's a difference between intellectual kshatriya and emotional kshatriya. The emotional kshatriya is somebody who's got all these outbursts, he's got his emotions out of control, he's got this anger, he's shouting slogans, and that's very easy to do. I mean, I wouldn't be working so hard if that's all I wanted to do, I could just do it. I could have done it 25 years ago, there's nothing new to do. But intellectual kshatriya has to first be an intellectual. And to be an intellectual kshatriya, you have to be a good writer. That's the means of being an intellectual. And you cannot learn to become a good writer unless you're a good reader. So, you know, if you can't read more than just two, three pages, and it's not something worth your while, and you don't have the attention span, you're not well informed, and you cannot become a writer. You can kind of show off and quickly write some things. But people, our people need to read a lot more. They, read, need, they really need to read, take a serious book, take 10 pages a day and make it your job to just read it a couple of times. And it will make sense. Maybe the first time you read it, 50% you will understand. That's a lot. If you can get 50% out of uh, uh, one of my books, even 25%, it's a lot of knowledge you will have. And then you read a second time, later on you will it'll get twice as much. So this uh, habit of reading uh, complex material, good arguments, understanding is something our people need to develop. We need more reading skills, book clubs, things of that sort. Then um, we need many uh, initiatives. I call some, I, I have coined a term Swadeshi Indology. Swadeshi Indology. So rather than Videshi Indology, which is foreign view of Indology, we need Swadeshi Indology, which is our own view of Indology. And I've explained what, I'm in the final chapter, I've explained what are the projects we need, what are the projects, who should do it, how much, what funding we need. I've put all those things out. So I'm not just showing problems, I'm also proposing concrete solutions. In the final chapter, I've listed 18 debates we need to have, 18 topics, what the other side is saying, and how we have to debate them. I have 18 debates. So this morning at the Sanskrit University, I told them, and they were very happy. They want to pick five topics and help me debate. That's what we need. People, I told them, look, you pick the topics. You firstly have your best scholars read all this. You, you pick the topics and then I'll come back in two or three months and we'll have a big brainstorm for a few days and your best scholars will debate these topics. And I will represent the Western Indology and debate you. Okay? I will play the role of the Western Indologist and say, this is our position, give me the answer. And let's see if you can give the answer. That is how debating is learned. And they're very interested and excited and committed to do this. 
But then they said, sir, where will the funding come from? That I don't know. See, we don't have these funding, millions going in the wrong things. Millions are going into all kind of stuff here and there in, in, the, in this field. But for the serious work I want to do, just to get a few people uh, incentivized and con uh, you know, renting halls and travel and this and that, we're not talking about crores, but we're talking about a few lakhs, it's very difficult to raise funds for this sort of project. That's sad. I can't, I mean, that's for people like you to have to come together and put something, put a budget together, put some money together so we can do these things. So, my role, I, I use the expression in this book, another dangerous expression. I'm doing many dangerous things in my books and I always get uh, attacked. So, another phrase, another phrase I use, I thought it's pretty cool, but they tell me, no, 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 it's dangerous. So, I said, okay, I'll definitely put it there. <laughs> so, so I, put, I, I say that we have to remove the burqa from the mind. This is a mental burqa. Uh, there's burqa in the sense that only little bit of light comes from two places and we don't win dark. So we got a little bit of light coming and we are living a whole life sitting like that. We have to remove this. Even our own traditional guys have to get rid of the burqa of the mind. So I will, uh, I will stop there because I could just go on. But uh, maybe what we should do... Uh, uh, Mohanji is to have some interesting Q&A Q&A session. Thank you so much for listening. All of you have a lot of questions, I'm sure. I'd like to request you all to keep your questions very brief, to the point. You know, the what, why, where, how, if, and such question direct. Okay, uh, just announce your name, ask the question. Don't go into a monologue. Right? Because there are a lot of people having questions and you should do justice to them. So kindly come over to the stage, stand in a queue, one by one.